Welcome again to Steelcast. In Series 1, we talked to leaders across Tata Steel in the UK about the impact of the coronavirus and the restrictions governments were putting in place and how that was affecting our markets, our customers, our people and our suppliers. These modern-day giants of the UK steel industry talked us through the measures they were taking to manage their way through the lockdown and how our steel heroes across the land were responding, the first R, to keep our people safe and our business running. In series two, we'll be talking to those people who are down the middle of the next R, recovery. And while there has been much talk over recent months about whether it will be the UK government or the parent company in India that will ride in on a white charger, the narrative within the company has been very much about controlling what we can control and being ready for an upturn in the markets, which is what ultimately will make the difference to the company's bottom line finances. Since March, one of the company's most iconic markets, automotive, has almost come to a standstill, with car production largely ceasing along with the supply chains that support them. Who, after all, wants to buy a car when you're not allowed to travel? But as COVID measures are relaxed and those who remain secure in their jobs have found they may have actually saved a few quid during the lockdown, are people now considering a new car one of their first priorities? Certainly the roads around me seem busier than ever before, and while Boris is talking build, build, build to support the construction industry, we hear adverts from car makers encouraging people to buy, buy, buy. So what's the real story? And when can the steel industry expect to get some of its most valuable orders back in its mills? My name is Tim Rutter and today I'm joined by Sector Head Automotive, Kevin Edgar, to guide us through where we've been and where we might be going. Kevin, a very warm welcome to the pod. Hi, Tim. Now, firstly, if we look back to March and the lockdown, you know, how bad was it for automotive? How how quickly did that affect your sector? Tim, it was uh, quite the most unusual thing I've ever seen at the time. Uh, on a daily basis, we were we were hearing of uh, our customers closing their factories, having to do so because they they couldn't control the uh, the pandemic through their workforce. People were frightened around around the opportunities. Uh, of catching the disease from workmates and 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 very quickly uh the the demand for uh for steel fell off a cliff because production stopped um and it varied across the patch and some people were later away from the from the production uh, arena than others for instance jaguar land rover were probably one of the the latest to to actually stop but one of the one of those that stopped for the longest. And I guess that left, you know, car showrooms, car dealerships and the and the part suppliers uh, that supply that chain full of stock as well. Yeah. I mean, an amusing anecdote. My my own uh, son bought a car in at the end of February and he didn't get his hands on it till June because he was locked in the showroom <laughs> uh, because all of the showrooms very quickly shut and they had nobody to prepare the vehicle to let him get his hands on it. So he'd even even paid his money and he couldn't get his get his vehicle. So it, it really did have a massive impact through the supply chain. I mean, if you look at our own supply, our first quarter supply was around 49% of what we expected in the first quarter of the year in total. And significant difference if you look at uh, mainland Europe, Europe to the UK. So 
our our operational percentage, if you like, where we thought we would be against plan in the UK was around 30% for the first quarter. Yeah, it's big, isn't it? And just be, you know, before we go into too much detail about our steel supply into that into the chain, for those people who don't really understand our role in the automotive sector, what are the sorts of products that we make, uh, and, and what does that supply quite simply look like between us, you know, making steel and and a showroom? It's it's interesting you you bring that point up because we do touch very different parts of the supply chain right through the direct business that we supply to to plan and a lot of that is the the full finished uh, outer panels that get painted in the brilliant colours that that most people recognise uh, the car by uh, but but uh, but underneath the structural grades that actually uh, that actually uh, maintain the performance of the vehicle. That they all come from from our from our own facilities, whether that be in the UK or in uh, in mainland Europe. And the interesting thing about that as well is that we supply right down the value chain to some of the component and system suppliers, either directly, either directed by the OEM themselves, or yeah. sometimes through service centres where where uh, where they have contracts with some of the uh, the tiers in the supply chain. But but it's not what people might necessarily think of being, you know, it's just coils of galvanized steel that we supply because there are other parts of the business. I know, for example, tubes uh, and we've got the business in Wensfield for Taylor Welded Blanks. But, but we've also got sort of a service uh, part of our business through through the sort of research and development automotive uh, specialists as well, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you if you talk about the the engagement with our customers in the stages when they're thinking about about how how the car will be designed and what the the uh, the panel profiles look like we've we've got a whole team of people that support that and beyond that we we manufacture a, a whole range of semi finished products from uh shaped blanks and square blanks that go on to be stamped into uh the uh, exceptionally complex panels that that make up the outside of the body but also the structure of the vehicle tubes yeah. as you say in suspension systems and more recently and more actively engaging in in steels that go into electric motors for evs and uh, and uh, steel casings for cell batteries for um for battery packs as well yeah so it's maybe unsurprising that I guess if you ask most steel workers, if you were a, if you met a steel worker and say, oh, what, what do your products go into? Probably the first sector they would mention would be automotive. It's a very easy sort of go to. Uh, and what sort of you know percentage of our business is automotive compared to construction, packaging, engineering? So how big is it and how valuable is it? Because we've got, we've got some very valuable brands in construction, haven't we? Some of the, the panels, the profiles, the coated products are great added value. You know, how big is automotive and how valuable is it to us? Well, well, overall, the, the automotive business is, is is a significant chunk of our our revenue. And what, what we have to remember is that there's a significant uh, degree of high value products in the automotive sector. And that that's something that hit us quite badly in that first quarter. We were still able to sell uh to those tiers and service centers because they were still manufacturing components and systems but but they were not necessarily the higher value products the hot some of the higher value products are the full finished outer body panels that we sell to the oem so if they stopped it had such a massive impact on the mix and the value that we that we uh that we supply to the marketplace and uh 
that of course was was a big blow. I mean, construction is still by far the biggest steel using sector. Uh, I would say across uh, all of the regions that we serve. But automotive yeah. is very much a, a, a strong second alongside packaging. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, been a difficult six months for you, I'm sure, with uh, the situation as you describe it. And I said in the introduction about, you know, who wants to buy a car in lockdown because no one can go anywhere. But I remember not that long ago speaking to our employee benefits manager um, and he was saying he had a list as long as his arm of uh, people waiting for new company cars. And, you know, maybe people may not understand the impact of the of the leasing sector on the new car markets and how important that is is that is that going to be key for recovery uh, the big fleet buyers are are the big um are the big buyers in the marketplace the retail segment is 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 a smaller proportion of the overall sale of vehicles and that's particularly true in the uk where the the principle of the con- company car is still relatively strong and also the um, prevalence of uh, personal uh, lease plans in the UK as well is something that that keeps those big fleet buyers busy buying vehicles uh, to to sell to sell on in, in uh, retail uh, markets to to people who want to take out those personal lease plans. So it's a significant chunk of the market. And and when the market did take the massive dip. Um, looking at what the fleet buying situation uh, was was something that we we did import did it did as a really important piece of work to establish just where the market was going and and even now uh, you know if you if you happen to bump bump into somebody who you happen to know that works in a car dealership he yeah. might well say to you i don't quite see the footfall through the through the um through the doors that i used to see and that's also something that really switched during the the sort of uh, lockdown period. The OEMs got really smart about about uh, selling cars on the internet. They got yeah. smart about selling their used approved cars through the internet. So maybe maybe people are using different channels to market. Um, there's that irritating advert for uh, Kazoo, I think they're called, who will <laughs> deliver a car to your door. Yeah. Uh, all these new channels to market for purchasing cars make it make it really difficult to make the old assessment. Well, what's happening in the showroom? Well, they're mm. not selling cars. Well, that's it. Then we all understand where the market's going. It's a very complicated set of channels to market for all of their cars nowadays. Yeah. And you can't help thinking, you know, COVID has changed so many things in our lives fundamentally. And you wonder how many of those changes are going to be permanent. You know, with the increase of people working from home, you know, I'm hearing conversations about saying, well, you know, between me and my wife, you know, rather than having two cars, we'll just have one car and, and you know, someone will use it two days of the week and the other person will use it another two days of the week. Or, you know, what, do you think l- this will have a significant step change in in how we use cars, how much we use cars, how we share cars and therefore impact the market forever? I think it may. Um, and the reality was the market was going to change anyway. So, so having multiple use vehicles in your family when you can afford it um is likely still to happen you know i'll drive the ev to work but um if i want to load the kids in the in the car to go and uh, play um uh, kids soccer at the weekend or rugby or whatever it happens to be or even worse cricket or hockey when you've got a huge bag to go with it you're still going to need your people carrier and yeah. and that might change ownership models 
and people may lease cars and people may lease cars off the off the car park of of an office block because you're not mm. you're not necessarily using that vehicle for the um for the entirety of the day and somebody else can make use of it that that's coming anyway tim and the jury's out some people actually say that it will result in increase of increasing numbers of new vehicles on the road simply because uh with more runtime the cars will wear out quicker yeah yeah oh it's fascinating to 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 try and plan those scenarios isn't it like i guess we get back to kind of what's happening right now you know a month or so ago i heard that bmw mini line was up back up to full capacity and running flat out they're making as many cars as they could and and yeah i'm not hearing a similar story about galvanizing lines that 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 are supplying car makers like bmw why is that kev i think a lot of it boils down to uh the company's own plans around uh their own uh, manufacturing assets, you know, when they want to run maintenance periods, what they have planned, et cetera. So that may determine um, some peak volumes. They may have shifted some models around, et cetera, to increase capacity at one site so that they can uh, they can uh, make, take some relief somewhere else. It's also down to the success of models. I mean, there are there are models right across our portfolio that have restarted and are going exceptionally well. And as a result, uh, we're seeing increasing demand on those models, but others are really still suffering. Um, and that's not necessarily uh, COVID-19 related. That might be might be due to more relevant macro issues around not having the right powertrain configuration, uh, for instance, and not having a yeah. not having a hybrid on offer, and people choosing vehicles where there is a hybrid on offer. Yeah, and I was going to come on to that because you know clearly some places are getting up quicker than others or doing better than others, and and I wondered how much of that is to do with brand, but you you know you said maybe that it's to do with some other issues in there as well. Yeah, it's about what people want to buy. Um, yeah. You know, uh, there are models right across Europe that are extremely successful because they offer what the consumer wants at the moment and and fashions change. And, uh, you know, uh, a few years ago, um, we developed the um, the soccer mom culture in the UK, a bit like it uh, was traditional in 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 North America. And uh, everybody wanted a seven seater people carrier uh, yeah. fashions of and uh, people's consciences have changed as well around around the use of fossil fuels so people switch switching to hybrid variants certainly switching away from diesel and um, you can argue the uh, rights and wrongs around that but whether that was politically driven or whether it's uh, it really is a mass pollutant um, because uh, some of the uh, automotive lobby groups would argue that um, that diesels are not as bad as they've been portrayed by some parts of the uh, of the media. Yeah, and that feels like a whole new podcast, Kevin, and, and I'm sure we'll pick it up another day. But, uh, you know, in the interest of, of today's talk about recovery, uh, I, ca- I can't not ask you about your next favourite topic of Brexit, because from a steel industry perspective, you must have mixed feelings because you know nobody wants any sort of tariffs or border checks to interrupt that those international supply chains, especially complex as they are in automotive. But on the other hand, you know, we have many great car makers in the UK. Won't, won't Brexit make local sourcing more attractive for them? 
Um, it, it is a mixed bag, Tim. You're absolutely right. And the the key issues that that we have to manage over the the coming months is just exactly what will happen around December 31st, making sure that uh, the product that we supply from the UK arrives in mainland Europe at our our own customers uh, at, at the right time, and that we we are are clear. Uh, that we have the stock in position to serve them and that they have no concerns. Um, the next thing and the thing that we're wrestling with now is is precisely what will happen around around tariffs. Now, um, we have to plan for the worst and hope for the best, but um, we need to make sure that we are properly, properly positioned, we understand the situation and that we maintain a, a competitive supply into mainland Europe, uh, into the EU, uh, mm. and, and ensure that we are still able to do that. It is an important part of what we do. There is really no UK to UK proposition entirely because we re we rely upon the mixed capability of both Imauden, Segal, Zodiac, and uh, the hot and cold mills in 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 various places to give us the broad capability that we need to serve our customers. Yeah, and and as you tried to explain earlier about the the complexity of those supply chains, yeah, you know, as I understand it, you may have a you know a component that's made in the UK that might go to to the European Union. It gets put into some sort of system, and it comes back into the UK to be put into a car, and then that car could be exported again. It's it gets that complicated, doesn't it? It does, and uh, we might supply steel to to some quite remote. Uh, destinations from either our facilities in the EU and in the UK uh, and they they cross boundaries more than once it's uh, it's it's well known that that happens and um, that's something that the automotive supply chain will need to get a grip of and what we have in the UK is a situation where we were moving towards two million vehicle production the whole thing around Brexit really um, really made the OEMs nervous about their investment plans in the UK. Uh, the government uh, uh, had done a lot of work in attracting foreign direct investment in terms of uh, suppliers into the UK to support that 2 million uh, vehicle target. We'll be lucky if we make 1.5 in the next few years and we need to get that back on track. And a lot of what's happening around getting the automotive industry back on track in the UK really focuses on um, the the challenge, the the electric mobility challenge, and how how we go forward as a let's say an expert nation and an expert capability to manufacture that type of vehicle. Yeah, it really is a complex picture, isn't it? And uh, you know, the combination of Brexit and COVID uh, is going to be as big a challenge as, as any of us have faced, but it seems especially in automotive. But, you know, we've heard that some of these plants are now getting up to a decent level of business and you've explained, uh, explained why. But I guess if it's one of our critical sectors, it's, you know, got lots of added value products on there. They're, you know, supply chains that we're very close to. We've got strong relationships and a good history, uh, developing new products. You know, if it's that important, we must be very impatient for, for for your sector to get up to full levels as quickly as possible. Any idea when we might start to see that? The way it looks is very much like um, a, a relatively slow recovery back to, to pre-COVID levels. Um, and it depends which econ economist you listen to. 
you know that that recovery could be well into 2022 uh, 23 uh, in some cases we'll start to see vehicle vehicle volumes increase uh, through through next year um but we don't yet know what will beset us in the next few months in terms of maybe a second wave of covid uh, as you said, we've got Brexit to deal with in the UK, and that will have a massive impact on the European industry as well, because let's not forget the top five selling cars in the UK are all produced in the EU, not in the UK. And and that means that the import and export of vehicles is also a critical matter. So we don't quite know what's around the corner. We have to watch the market carefully in these extraordinary times. Um, it will be a slow uh, recovery, but we'll see we'll see some successes along the way. Like uh, like you mentioned, Mini earlier, that's been a real boost to us in the last three or four months, and long may it continue. Absolutely. Um, now, Kevin, I'm, I'm very conscious of your time. We've covered a huge amount in terms of kind of where we've been, uh, what the recovery might look like for the automotive sector. It looks like a prolonged one. I know you and uh, your team and all the guys in in operations as well be working extremely hard to make the best of that recovery and to manage our way through Brexit. Uh, and I'm sure we wish you all the very best of luck in those endeavours. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll catch up uh, sometime in the in next year and uh, see if some of those predictions have come true. Thanks, Tim. So there we have it. The automotive sector is maybe not so much bouncing back as climbing up the down escalator, but at least it's going in the right direction. There are some positive signs for those car makers who have built a powerful brand and there is hope in the lease car sector. In the coming episodes, we'll be looking at some other sectors to see what their recovery is looking like, as well as the operational challenges of getting back to annual plan volumes and some of the people challenges for those at work, those at home and those on or coming back from furlough. If today's podcast has made you prick up your ears and got your steel industry juices flowing, why not subscribe to Steelcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from? You can listen to previous episodes from around the UK and hear from more proud and passionate steelworkers. See you next time when we delve into another part of one of the UK's longest standing, most essential and best loved industries.